This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Future Proof by Stephen McAlpine. Stephen McAlpine is an Australian writer and speaker who specializes in cultural engagement and the church. His new book, Future Proof, is now available. McAlpine encourages readers that we have been given everything we need in Christ to thrive in a post-Christian cultural landscape. Visit thegoodbook.com future to find this book and other resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way and use code FUTURE at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash future. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, you'll hear a message from Mindy Bells on learning from suffering siblings in faraway lands. This workshop was originally held at TGC's 2018 Women's Conference. I was having a conversation with J.C. Derrick, who is the managing editor of our podcast. If you are someone who doesn't have time to sit down and read a lot of news, or you're just so done with the news these days, I want to recommend our podcast. It's called The World and Everything in It, and it is available on iTunes, any of the places you find podcasts. Um, He's doing a great job, and um, he just... (laughs) He said, why is it the women on our staff who are doing the hardest stories? And as he said that, I actually was sitting at my laptop working on this panel presentation. And I started thinking about it. I wrote down some names, and I want to give them to you because I think they're names that um, you might, if you're interested in this topic, interested in some of the things that are leading to persecution around the world, you will want to follow a couple of these reporters. Because what I was struck by is that not only in, in little world world, um, but in, in larger women who, the people who I consider doing some of the best reporting on areas where ISIS has been um, crucial and, and cruel and on places that lead to persecution, lead, where the church is really under the gun, these are they're all women. Uh, Rukmini Kalamachi, that's not a name that's familiar to you. She is a New York Times reporter who has made it her beat to cover ISIS. And she's doing it in a really remarkable way. She's actually wanting to understand how ISIS thinks. And so she doesn't simply talk about victims of ISIS, which has been my domain, but talks about 
uh, but interviews former ISIS and current ISIS and has done some incredible things. I actually crossed paths with her in Mosul um, last year. Laura Logan is one who's with 60 Minutes for a long time and who, you know, we think of she was she was attacked during the Tahrir Square um, uprising in Egypt. And Liz Sly is another, and I've already mentioned her to someone here, Liz Sly covers the Syrian war for the Washington Post. These are women who are doing some of the hardest. If you, I'm just going to say it's the best piece of reporting that I've seen this year, Liz Sly's stories of a Syrian family who came out of Syria and climbed the mountains into Lebanon, and there was a sudden snowfall um, that wasn't no one was expecting. And these, when they got to Lebanon, they were frostbitten, including a four-year-old. And it was um, just a searing picture of what these people are going through. And Liz Sly climbed up into the mountain when she heard about these people and got at them as they were trying to endure this incredible trek that they were making. The, the small postscript to this is that someone posted a picture that Liz Sly had published on Facebook. And because all these families have been separated from one another, and the father of the four-year-old in Beirut saw a picture of his four-year-old on Facebook and came and got him. But so why am I talking about these women reporters? Our reporting on our staff elsewhere dominated by women, doing the hardest stories. There's even a joke on my staff. Um, if we say, we're really going to send her to do this? And um, one of our editors will say, you know what we always say? We say, chicks up front. And I resent that. But I want to try out on you guys something. I think that there's a reason that women and you guys are here in this room at the end of the day talking about a hard topic. Um, I think that there's a reason. I think that women in our makeup, in our physical vulnerability, um, and in our emotional makeup, I think that we have an empathy and, um, and an a, a attraction is not the right word, but we are drawn to the vulnerable and the weak, and we ought to view that as a gift. And I want to encourage you that if you're here and if you're interested about this talk, to, to go with your gift, to think of it as a gift to be drawn to the pain of the world, because pain of the world is hard. And... I get exhausted from it sometimes, and I, we have had some amazing people here. In the last session, we had an aid worker who I know, I sat down with her today. She's getting, I met her two years ago at Gospel Coalition Conference, and she's getting ready to go back to Iraq, and she's had an incredible year, and she's seen some incredible things, and she's taking a few months off and going back into it. And we talked about what that's like, about getting recharged to go back into it. There was... Um, an immigration um, lawyer here who is handling an incredible caseload, but she's going back into it um, after she leaves here. So I know there are so many stories I don't know here in this room. And I just want to encourage you that what God has given us is a, a heart for the hurting in the world. And, and we so often our natural instinct is to move away from that. And I hope we'll come away with a better sense of how we can move toward it. Where I'm coming from, and, and you know, as a, as a woman traveling, I um, 
One of the first mistakes I made was, of many, um, was reporting in Sudan uh, back before 9-11. That will tell you how long ago it was. And I walked into a room where I knew I was meeting someone who was going to help me get to this no-go area that I wanted to go to where um, flights weren't going in and things, there was a bad humanitarian situation developing after um, some the government in Khartoum had attacked some Christian villages. And I needed this guy to open the way for me and the people I was with to go. And I walked right in, and he's um, a Sunni Muslim and pretty high-ranking. And I did the American thing and stuck out my hand to shake his hand. You don't do that. And, um, and he stepped back away from me because men don't touch women if they aren't their, in their family. And, um, and I, I had to spend, instead of one meeting, I had to spend about four meetings uh, reestablishing my credentials and, and, um, and what we wanted to do and getting his permission. And that was a lasting lesson in um, the, the fact that I, you know, I might think I'm a reporter just like, you know, we tend to think, oh, I'm a reporter just like any other reporter, just like those guys down the hall or whatever. But in fact, we are women. And I learned, and I've learned in other settings too, to really embrace that to recognize if, for instance, in Afghanistan, I need to talk to government officials, but when it's time for lunch, I'm going to go over to the kitchen and have lunch with the women. I'm not going to be sitting with the men at lunch. That never happens. And instead of um, demanding my rights as a reporter, I sat down with the women and began learning about their lives. And I learned so much because what I realized was the male reporters can't sit down with the women. And I sat down with the, the women and I began to learn things about their, their lives and that were actually helpful to my reporting that I would never have learned if I'd stayed talking to those government guys. So again, just on this theme, I, th I think that... Um, we have to come at these hard issues wherever we are and with who we are. We don't, we don't become like overnight experts or we don't become, um, we, we don't have to be macho men to take them on either. Um, I'm going to give you a few statistics. We're going to start really broad and then I hope come down a little bit narrow as I talk about some of the um, issues that... I have encountered while finding myself, I never actually went out to cover the persecuted church. What happened more often is that I'd be covering conflict, like in Sudan, and I would realize that how deeply the, um, in that case at that time, and, and actually it's still continuing, um, the animosity of the Islamic government in Sudan was toward its Christian populations right now. Nuba Mountains is an area that you can Google if you want to learn more about what's happening. That is a heavily Christian area that has just been attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked by that government. Um, so broadly speaking, um, and I, I should finish my thought there, that, that I never set out to actually cover that Christian community. I was covering that conflict. And the same thing in Iraq. I went to Iraq for the 
I went in 2002 and again in 2003 as the war started to cover the war. And then I began to learn about the Christian community. And as I did that, I began to see what was happening. I began to see how misunderstood they were as a community. The, the fact that I would come home and be telling people about my, my travels, and they would say, there are Christians in Iraq? And we weren't aware of this. We weren't paying attention. And so that is the way that I entered in to being drawn to these people. And so I want to go big, come small a little bit. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what I've started calling finding water in the desert. And that's a really apt description if you're traveling in the Middle East, especially in Iraq, where the many of the ancient Christian communities are out in Nineveh Plain. And it is an area of... Um, it is a vast plain, and I've stood out there when it was about 120 degrees, and there's no shade anywhere. And um, finding water in those kinds of places, and I think that's a heart of what leads us to thinking about what we can learn. Not just that the persecuted church is something to be pitied, but that it is something that has much to teach us. But here's, here are a few, if you can bear with me, a few numbers and a few statistics, some things that I think are interesting to help us put this into perspective. All the academic surveys on religious oppression come to this conclusion, and I'm going to cite Pew as the Pew Center for Religious Studies. Nearly 80% of the world's population lives in religiously oppressive countries. And what that tells you is that this is something that's going to always be with us, or at least in our lifetimes. So as long as we have the political systems, and especially some of the destabilized situations and conflict situations that we have, as long as we have that, and we have 80% of these countries that are willing to oppress um, people who believe differently, uh, we, are, we are going to be hearing about persecution. And simply put, what I mean by persecution is harassment, fear, imprisonment, or even death simply because of what a person believes. But here's where it gets a little bit complicated, but it helps us think about our own brothers and sisters in Christ and why there are so many groups and so much focus on Christian persecution. The only large group of Muslims living in a non-Muslim country with restricted religious freedom is our Muslims who live in India. The only country that is majority Christian uh, who face restrictions on religious freedom is Russia. So you can kind of eliminate those. And then think of this, that um, leaving out those, leaving out India, leaving out Russia, the difference becomes this. That leaves 700 million Muslims who are living in countries with restricted or no religious freedom. And those are all Muslim-majority countries. So in other words, they are unlikely to face persecution unless they decide to convert to something other than Islam. In contrast, there, that leaves 200 million Christians who live in countries with restricted or no religious freedom and that are, are non-Christian countries. 
So in other words, did I say that right? Yeah. The remaining 200 million Christians live in countries with restricted or no religious freedom. Um, They are all living in non-Christian countries. So they are all open to some kind of persecution. And that's, the, that's sort of the math behind where we come to. Very often, I will be asked as a journalist, do you, focus, do you ever look at Muslims being persecuted? Do you ever look at um, Hindus facing persecution? Do you ever look at what the Maoists are doing to so-and-so in Nepal or that kind of thing? And I will say, yes, absolutely. But what's overwhelming is the, um, the persecution that Christians face. And it is simply a matter of the way that countries are situated. The most populous countries of the world are typically Muslim-dominated countries who restrict non-Muslim believers. Um, and But I also want you to remember the other really important takeaway, that Muslims who face religious persecution face it when they renounce their faith. And very often I feel like the church doesn't show up for them or the church treats them differently. I see that in some other places. Um, and so we want, to, we want to keep them in mind too. And so some of the things, I mean, just coming forward, um, I have taught a workshop like this at each of, uh, you weren't at the one two years ago, right? But, no, yeah, but... Yeah, that's right. And so I've talked about this subject. And so forgive me to the extent that I repeat myself. But if I repeat myself, it's because it hasn't changed. Um, And a couple of things, though, that I was thinking about that are new. Um, we, We have sort of new statistics, and they've been in the news quite a bit with the summit that we've had with uh, North Korea that President Trump and Kim Jong-un had. And uh, those numbers indicate between 50 or 70 um, and 80,000 Christians are in prison in North Korea. And North Korea remains, has perennially been one of the worst abusers of Christians And, I mean, North Korea would like people to be atheists as a communist regime. That is, is, they want you to worship the state. And um, the the cost for Christians, these are nameless people for us, but they're not nameless to God. And that is is a, a huge area. And as we think about potential progress in terms of our relationship with North Korea, in terms of changes, on the Korean Peninsula, this has to be a key feature of those conversations and those discussions. China, in the last year, we actually have a reporter who covers China, and I work with her pretty closely. And in the last year, we have seen just an explo—you know—we've seen an explosion of Christianity in China. It's it's one of the fastest growing. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the fastest growing religious populations in the world. And now we have a new, um, uh, 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 not new, but, but the, com- the Chinese president has really begun again, as we've seen happen cyclically in China, to crack down on this now very large and actually kind of influential church. Um, in just about a month or so ago, um, China moved in 
Chinese authorities moved in, let me say, to um, close down one of the largest house churches. And when we think about house churches, we're not talking about a house. Um, we would have been like 20 years ago. And yes, there are some that still meet in houses, but these house churches have grown into vast networks. And there is um, one in particular that meets in Sichuan province, and it's, it's enormous. And they operate... Um, you know, pretty openly now because they've gotten so large they, they can't do otherwise. And the police showed up and began to arrest the leaders. And some of the people in the congregation protested. They waited till it was time for service. I think it was a Sunday. Um, and, they, and they just, anyone who protested the arrest of the leaders got arrested too. And so we started hearing about this. There were dozens of people from this church in jail. And they closed the church. This has been their pattern, that they, they use protesting the arrests as a pretext for shutting down the church. One thing that really concerns us is um, there's been an incredible growth of Christian schools in China that have been coming out of these churches. And several of them have been closed this year. And that immediately is a hardship for children and also is, uh, you know, gets at what happens to the next generation of Christians. And a lot of people who are deeply involved with the church in China really worry that this is like the start of a cultural revolution kind of crackdown again. And, and that we will see, as we saw um, during that time, that church life will be essentially wiped out unless it is officially guaranteed, uh, is officially sanctioned government church activity. And so we need to really pray for the church in China because it is, it is now a church that probably, um, I mean, I hear numbers all over the place, 80 million, 100 million. But this is, this is one of the largest populations in the world. And, you know, this is a growing economy. It is, it is dominant. It's come to be dominant economically, politically in Asia. And so it's, it's wonderful to think of Christians, of, you know, Chinese policy and Chinese life beginning to actually have uh, Christian expression in it. And, and it would be tragic to see that shut down. What I love about that church that was uh, where the police showed up to arrest the pastors is that this is what happened on Monday. It was on a Sunday because on Monday, after they released these people, but they had shut down and were saying they couldn't meet anymore. On Monday, two pastors went to that local police station. They lodged a complaint about what had happened, but then they stood outside the, um, the police station, and they held signs that read, God loves the world, and we don't harbor resentment. Um, and the, <laughs> the police came out. They were doing this. They were just like standing outside the police station. It looked like they were protesting, but they had these kinds of signs, about a dozen of them. The police came out and didn't know what to do with them because they were, you know, they weren't doing anything. So they just, they took their cell phones and they arrested them again. Um, and so after that, some other members of the church went down to the police station and they sang a hymn called The Cross is Our Glory. Do any of you know that hymn? I don't know if that's like a translation from the Chinese and it's a Chinese hymn, but 
so the other people in the church went down to the police station after they had arrested their pastors a second time and sang a hymn for the police. And I think that's a great, um, again, like a water in the desert moment. It's a great um, a picture, too, of, of sort of the feistiness and the perseverance of this church. What are they doing when things like this happen? What, are, what is the church doing when it responds in love or responds in um, persevering with people who are trying to persecute them is, is directly tied to what we were hearing from Don Carson this morning, that the piece where he talked about um, rejecting false worship. And, and he said, he, he used the phrase, upholding a discipline that preserves truth. And this is so important that if we believe that the gospel is um, is is uh, salvation, what else can I say? If we believe that that is the power of the gospel, then the gospel is worth fighting for. And this is what I think we can learn, we be can begin to see um, when we look at some of the stories that come out of churches that are being persecuted. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about, uh, I've heard from some of you who've, who've read this book and, um, and have heard perhaps the journey that I went on, but I, I want to tell you just as a way again of focusing on, on what it looks like to get inside um, some of these persecuted groups. As I mentioned, when I first went to Iraq, I was going to cover the war, not to... Um, cover necessarily the church. I began to learn about the church. I began um, going to worship services, finding just dramatic variety and um, uh, robustness, both in new evangelical churches and in some of the old ancient churches that were still reciting liturgy in Aramaic. And I began, I mean, being drawn to what their experiences were. What I didn't anticipate was that under the, under the, um, the U.S.-led war, as we saw the rise of the Islamic groups, including um, Islamic State of Iraq, which was existing in Iraq as far back as 2010, that those groups would be rising up to attack and target the churches. Though we saw it happening as early as 2004 and 2006, there were many target, there were attacks on churches. Um, I started hearing because I was making contacts with the churches. I started hearing about kidnappings and um, and and priests and pastors who were being killed, and um, they it began to be the steady drumbeat. And what what I saw too. And I'm sorry to say that we're seeing it again, is that, you know, with U.S. military presence very heavy in the country, with political leaders who were working with Iraqi leaders wanting to instill this idea of pluralistic democracy, had worked very hard with the Iraqis to create a governing assembly that would be composed of people from all the groups in Iraq. That meant one parliamentarian who was from the Christian bloc, but it meant others who were supportive of Christians. And they were working very hard on one level to create this kind of government, this kind of future for Iraq. But when it came right down to um, 
the persecution that was happening literally under the nose of U.S. military and political leaders, they would not acknowledge it and they would not, um, they would not take steps to, to prevent it. Um, and I, I tell in the book the story of, of talking with a NATO advisor who had just come from a meeting of all the generals who were working in Iraq at that time. And he said that the because the situation, there was so much turmoil in the Mosul region at that time. And um, he asked the question, uh, if the Islamic groups target the Christians, what will the United States military do? And keep in mind, we were based there. We had... We had 100,000 soldiers, and we had a base right outside Mosul. We had one that was just south of Nineveh Plain. If they come after them, if they begin to target them, if they begin to take over some of their cities, what will um, the military do? And he watched as around the room the generals shook their head and, and basically said, we won't do anything. That's not what we're here for. And I have... Um, and what we, what we saw from that from the unwillingness of political leaders to, um, to, inf to basically to uphold pluralistic society, which is what we count on here in this country, um, that out of that came all that unfolded, that Mosul became a place that became so dangerous for Christians to live in. Uh, a city, I mean, it used to be Nineveh, and it was a huge, um, it, it had a large Jewish population a century ago. Um, and it had a large Christian population that by 2014, a city of 2 million had 30,000 Christians living in it. And um, when ISIS came in 2014, they were able to move them out, kill a number of them, and, um, and then move out from there into those villages, those very villages in Nineveh Plain, and to empty them and to chase out all of the believers. And because this political climate had been created, there was no sense of standing up to protect them. And so I think that when we, um, when we think about persecution, there is a real place. We all have different roles that we can play, but there is a real place for political engagement and for 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 leadership, for letting political leaders know that these things are happening and that, um, that we expect them to uphold our values. Or, or in a foreign country, we want foreign leaders to uphold the, the protection of their own people. So what that, you know, we come forward to 2014, all these people forced out. And now we're in a situation where these Communities have been liberated from ISIS. We saw this incredible fight. Syria, there, a number of areas of Syria have been retaken from some of the Islamic groups. And um, all of Nineveh Plain, the Iraqi army with U.S. support and other countries, has retaken these areas. I was there in them in March. And it's remarkable. Um, the, the city of Mosul is just alive again. And... Um, they have a Ferris wheel, lighted Ferris wheel, and um, and shops coming back, and the the shopkeepers very quickly put out colorful dresses because no one could wear colorful dresses while ISIS was in charge of Mosul. All the women wore black, so all these things are happening. 
but it's the Muslims who are coming back because the Christians don't have the security. The Christians don't feel safe. They know that local people were involved in what happened to them in 2014, and they don't yet feel the security. They're starting to come back to these ancient villages because they have this incredible commitment to keeping Christianity in Iraq, in this area. It dates back to the second century. And so their commitment is remarkable, but they don't have support. The Archbishop of, um, the Chaldean Archbishop of Iraq just wrote a piece uh, this past week protesting, uh, I mean, saying that we were promised, I mean, it was actually $33 million, which is not a huge sum of money for rebuilding whole cities. Pledged by Vice President Pence last, I don't know, September, October, has not shown up. We have not seen any of the U.S. aid that was promised. And when the U.S. does that, other countries follow suit. And so these countries aren't receiving the money that it is going to take to help rebuild their communities, and they lack the security. So what I'm saying is that, uh, and this take goes back to the kind of the big picture numbers that we were talking about earlier. If you, even if the persecution is not active and ongoing, if the persecution is systemic, and it is keeping um, these these believers from feeling safe, those communities in effect are wiped out. It is the same as an act of genocide, what we saw a couple of years ago. Um, but I do want to emphasize that in the midst of that, it's remarkable to see what these small churches will do. And I was shocked when I went into one of the communities, the largest city in Nineveh, that had about 60 to 70,000 Christians forced out of it in August of 2014. And the churches in that city, they have not received U.S. funding. They are not receiving U.N. funding that is going to Mosul. Um, there are a couple, there's a Norwegian group and Samaritan's Purse and a couple of other groups that are in town helping to organize some, some grassroots rebuilding of houses. But the church has order, organized something called the Nineveh Reconstruction Committee. And Let's be honest, we all know how hard it is for Christian, for church leaders of different denominations to come together in our city and do something. And so here you have in the midst of this incredibly devastated situation, you have Chaldean church leaders and um, Syriac church leaders and Orthodox church leaders and a few um, American Protestants thrown in who are trying to help them. And they have formed this committee, and they have this big map on the wall. They have, they have surveyed every home that's been destroyed in the city. They have color-coded them according to how much um, rebuilding they need. And um, they, have, uh, they have divided the city into sectors and assigned people who say they will help with rebuilding, and they're using volunteer labor. And then, so I looked at the map, and I said, can we go look here? And they said, sure, we'll take you out there. And so we went to these neighborhoods, and we saw the way that people are rebuilding. And it's fascinating. And it's, um, it's remarkable, because I think that they will wait months for governments to step in and, and do something to help them, but they are trying to do it themselves. And really, their whole push is to reestablish the presence of Christianity, to be able to worship in their homeland and things like that again. And they're willing to risk something to do it. And I think it has a lot to teach us. It teaches us the, the, um, 
we don't often have to risk something, and so we lose that muscle. And I think that, um, that risking something is actually part of the Christian life, part of what we're hearing in these sessions. And so um, what they are doing is, is leading away and showing us. Well, let me do one thing, because I hinted at this, and I didn't come back to it. I'm sorry that I didn't come back to it. This concerns me greatly, and it's something that we're seeing similar to this ancient community in the middle of Iraq. There's, there's also a very ancient Christian community that stretches along the border between Turkey and Syria. There are monasteries there that date back to the third century. I walked into Mar Zafran in 2015. It's this big old structure. And um, the, the monk who was taking me around and showing me and showing me some of their ancient documents, many of these places are repositories of scripture written in Syriac in the earliest um, centuries after Christ. And he also said, step down here. And he took me down under this chapel, and it was a sun temple. They don't know how old it is, but it was, it was a block sun temple where they had the, the uh, there's a name for the hole where the sun came in and they and they worshipped at certain times of the day, um, a pagan sun temple, and and this this monastery had actually been built on top of it, and so incredible history there. And soon after I was there, the Turkish government seized Marzafran, and I was hearing from some of the people there. They didn't know what was going to happen. The Turkish government ultimately turned it back over to them, but the, this happened in several places, and I think the whole point was to let the church know it shouldn't assume its continued existence. And what we've seen happen now is we've seen the, the Turkish army has moved into this area under the guise of fighting terrorists as they're fleeing Syria or fleeing Iraq, and they are wiping out these ancient Christian communities. And I just have finished reporting on this area near Afrin, or Afrin, as some people say, which is um, a little bit west of where Mars Afrin is, but also in an area that's been largely Christian, a lot of uh, Yazidis. So we're seeing something that is like what we saw in Iraq in 2014. And the Turkish government moved in with, we now know, a large contingent of radical Islamic fighters that they basically hired like mercenaries to fight alongside of them. And they forced out some of the Kurdish troops that had been protecting this. This was an area that was not at war, that was not currently an active part of the Syrian war, but they wanted to clear these communities and they wanted to have a buffer of control. What I find deeply disturbing is that the U.S., what ground forces we have in this area are right nearby. They're like 50 miles away and Turkey is an ally. And so we see how these policy decisions get made where the U.S. is basically saying, well, if Turkey controls this area, it's probably better than, say, Iran closing, controlling this area, or maybe better than Syria's Assad c controlling this area. So they're willing to tolerate um, this kind of activity. But the bottom line is that the Christian population is quickly the victim, and the Christian population is considered indispensable. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.